Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Be seated. As we've been going through the Gospel account, according to Matthew, we have seen very briefly how Matthew's Gospel has emphasized that Jesus Christ is from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of David. We have taken a look at all those marvelous prophecies uh, predicting his birth. And we saw that prophecy is nothing but the predestinating hand of a sovereign God. We've seen in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, what was the purpose of the Son of God being incarnated into this world and taking upon himself human flesh, becoming a man, it's all there in Matthew 1.21. When the angel told Joseph what to call this holy child, you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, meaning he will save his people from their sins. We've seen that <clears throat> Scripture focuses on John the Baptist and his ministry, that John was said to be the forerunner of the Christ, heralding the truth, his ministry of in, coming in the wilderness. And what was John's message have we seen so far? As chapter 3 brings out, his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Mark has said in the opening statement of his gospel account, as Jesus will later say, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist and his ministry marked the beginning of the gospel age. As Jesus says, uh, before John was the law, but after him <clears throat> uh, was his grace and truth. And so we see that John's preaching, and what was unique about it, and he came preaching... And, and having a baptism of repentance. And, and the nature of his repentance was this. And we looked at repentance one Sunday. And we saw that John himself said that his was a baptism of water, but he who was coming after me, who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was important. The reason he's called the forerunner of the Messiah is because his ministry says he will level the path in the wilderness. The mountains will be brought low. The valleys will be raised up. How do we prepare our hearts to receive the Messiah? By confessing our sins. By acknowledging that we're not self, that we are not righteous in ourselves. There is no hope in ourselves. And the heart prepared to receive 
the Lord is the heart that recognizes its need for a Savior. And that's what John's ministry was all about. That's what his baptism was. But as great as John's ministry was, and Jesus himself said, there was no man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. But John's ministry paled in insignificance in the sense, and even his baptism of water, it is an important sign. But remember, the sign of the covenant of baptism points to something. But it, does, it cannot give the substance. So John's baptism of repentance with water was pointing to the need of being baptized with the Spirit that only the Messiah could do. And then we see that we're to all, we looked last week at the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus, when John's out, uh, at the Jordan, baptizing uh, all those that were coming out to him. Lo and behold, here comes Jesus. Now, reveals himself to the public. And he comes to receive John's baptism. And we saw that John's trying to stop Jesus. And he says, other places says that John was preventing him to be baptized. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you want to be baptized with me? And it was important what Jesus said in Matthew 3.15. He says, permit it, this is Jesus saying to John, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And we saw that, first of all, does a perfect man need to ask forgiveness for anything? Well, no. John understood that, and that's why, in one sense, John tried to stop Jesus and says, I need to be baptized by you. No, John, we, we, you and I, must fulfill our righteousness. And in the baptism of Jesus, we noted that Jesus, the significance of that baptism, is not the fact that Jesus needed to ask forgiveness of anything, but the significance of his baptism is that Jesus has now officially come and publicly begun his ministry as the mediator of the new covenant. Now, what is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. And the mediator, Jesus, is the go-between between a holy God, whom we have offended by breaking his law, and man, the, the perpetrator. And Jesus is that mediator. He is the way to provide a means for sinful man to find forgiveness before a holy God. We looked at the fact that in his baptism, he is identifying himself as the second Adam. And in fulfilling all righteousness, and we looked at, uh, that important passage in Romans 5, where Ad, in Adam we all have sinned in his one act of disobedience. But in Jesus, we have all been justified by his one act of obedience. And so the whole life of Jesus, from his baptism to what we're going to emphasize today, and his being tempted in the desert, all of this is important in his role as the mediator who has come, his name is Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. He says, John, we must fulfill our righteousness. I must prevail over the evil one. Where Adam has failed, I must succeed. And so we see as, as necessary as uh, Jesus' baptism was, and remembering that baptism, what happened? It says that John saw the heavens writ open, and a dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descending and resting on Jesus. Remember, John says, the one who's coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John sees the Spirit of God in the form of a dove, and we talked about why did God choose the form of a dove, because it denotes gentleness 
compassion. And that was what Jesus' ministry was, how he calls sinners to himself with great compassion. And so we see there that Jesus is baptized, as it were. The Spirit is upon him. It will take the Spirit of God for the Messiah to do his, his work as the Redeemer. We saw in chapters, basically in chapters 1 through 3, the kingship of Jesus is emphasized. We're told that in his birth he was born that what? The king of the Jews. Micah talks about this, this ruler that will be coming. What is uh, one of the prophecies that Isaiah denotes about him? His name will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Isaiah 9, 6 talks about this Unto us a child will be born, and the increase of his government, will there will be no end. He will be called the Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Eternal Father, because he will be a father to his people. All of these things emphasize the kingship of Jesus. But now, though the kingship of Jesus will be emphasized later in his ministry, now a focus on the priesthood of Jesus. Uh, is, is going to take center stage. As our high priest, which Jesus is, he must suffer. Now, what does Hebrews 2.18? Hebrews 2.18 says this, that he suffered being tempted, and because he was tempted, Hebrews 2.18 says, he is able to render help to those of us who are tempted. He suffered in his temptation in order that he could identify with us and help us in our temptations. Now, is it any coincidence? Who leads Jesus into the wilderness? Is it the devil that leads him into the wilderness? No. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was all predestined. It had to happen. He had to be tempted of the devil. There's no coincidence that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. It's interesting to do a study in the scriptures. Uh, Numbers play significant roles many times. 40 days and 40 nights. How long did uh, the flood last? It rained on 40 days and 40 nights. Moses, when he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the commandments of God, was up there 40 days and 40 nights. When they sent spies into the land of Canaan to spy it out uh, in order to take possession of the land that God had promised Abraham, the spies were there how long? 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, this whole thing. Now, Jesus is there, and he will appear and begin his role as a priest, as it were, standing in for us. And this king, now notice Jesus, he's not from the Arianic priesthood. Hebrews 7 makes it very clear that Jesus' priesthood is unique. He's like Melchizedek of the Old Testament. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And Hebrews 7 says the Messiah will be a kingly priest. And and therefore we see that this kingly priest must secure the victory. Now where's the first promise of the gospel in the word of God? The first promise of the gospel is is Genesis 3.15 right at the tail end of the fall of man. In the fall of man, God comes and he spells out the consequences to all the parties involved. And then in in Genesis 3.15, he gives the promise. He says, there will be the seed of the woman who will be bruised by the seed of the serpent on his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so there in the Garden of Eden was set forth the whole sequence of human history. The battle between good and evil. 
The, doubt, the battle between the forces of good and the forces of darkness. Between the seed of the woman, who is the Messiah, Jesus, and the seed of the woman, uh, of the serpent, who is the devil, and all of those who follow him. And so we see, it was necessary for Jesus to be led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Because everything depended upon what happened in that encounter with Jesus and the devil. As the head of the covenant, he represents us. And you see, this whole idea of federal headship is, is essential to understand in Scripture. Adam was our federal head. The Bible says we sin in Adam. We have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And by his one disobedience, we have suffered. But then the Messiah, Jesus, the second or the last Adam, will come. And his one act of obedience, which encompasses really his whole life. When we think about his one act of obedience, don't necessarily think about the culminating end, which is uh, his work on the cross and therein. But he had to be the Holy Lamb of God. He had to be perfect. He had to keep that law perfectly. So that when he died, his atoning death would have significance. But his one act of obedience would save his people. But it all, brethren, could have been lost in the wilderness in one sense. But then in another sense, no, it would never be lost. And so we see here that the devil would come at an opportune time, the scripture says, and tempt him. Well, the scripture says in verse 2 that after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. He's a man. He has physical needs. And he's, he's not had food for this length of time, and he was hungry. And at that precise time is when the devil comes and then begins his, his series of temptations to Jesus. The tempter came, verse 3, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. You're hungry, Jesus. You're the Son of God. You're the miracle worker. You can do this. You can satisfy your hunger just like that. You can switch this stone into a bread if you want to. So do it. Now, while Jesus was liable to the devil's temptations, so that in that sense Jesus is taking upon himself our weaknesses, yet with not our faults. Whereas the first Adam failed in his testing, as he did fail, as you know, the second Adam must prevail in order to save us. So when we think about Christ's temptation, there are at least two questions that come to mind about the temptations of Jesus. First of all, could Jesus Christ have succumbed to the temptation? That's one of the first theological questions anybody that really thinks about this has to ask themselves. Could Jesus have really sinned? Secondly, if he was unable to sin, then was his temptation real? Some have said, well, for there to be, for the temptation to have the force that it does, it has to presuppose the capability of one falling. Well, that may be true with regard to us. But it's not with reference to Jesus. Turn with me. Now, we're going to come back to Matthew 4 here very quickly. But turn to Hebrews 4 and look at verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the first thing we need to understand about this, generally speaking, in the temptations of Jesus in the, in the wilderness by the devil, is the fact that, that because he is our high priest, 
because he is a real man, it says he was tempted in how many things? As we are all things, yet without sin. Now, what that means, and 1 Corinthians 10 brings this out, that there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man, but that God will give us a strength to endure it. We'll talk about that more next week. But here it says, there was no temptation ever taken Jesus, but that was common to every human being. So that Jesus understands our temptations. He was a real man. He understood, in a sense, though we may not fully understand it, he understands our weaknesses. And he is, as the Scripture talks about, our brother in that sense. He understands the power of the temptation to a human being. But isn't it wonderful that it says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to see in the temptations of Christ, it was necessary for him to prevail to be that mediator, that perfect mediator. But he does set an example for us of how we too can have victory over sin. So, With reference to that first question, could Christ have succumbed to that temptation? Could he have sinned? And the answer to that is no. In theology, I have discussed this before, you'll recall. It's called the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Impeccable means without capable of being uh, Falling, impeccable, without blemish. Well, it says here that Jesus, in his human nature, now remember, Jesus is the God-man. And there's one way I've I've used this, but I've actually brought an object demonstration for you today. I've, I've talked about it, but I've actually saw this. Now, every illustration has its limitations, but this actual uh, imitation came from the great theologian of the 19th century, W.G.T. Shedd, in his dogmatic theology. And talking about, if you want to read the best exposition of the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ, read W.G.T. Shedd. But he talked about that you can view the human nature like this wire right here. Now, watch this wire. That's what you ought to do to it. I just bent that thing. He says, Jesus, I mean, the Son of God, that is, in his incarnation, assumed a human nature from whom? His mother, Mary. And who's Mary? A sinner. Now, you would think, well, then, then that means he's capable of falling. Well, let's, let's go a little bit further. He's not just a man. He's the Son of God. So you take this. This wire, which represents the human nature of Jesus, that can be bended. And pretend my hand is iron, and you can put this right here. Now try to bend that wire. Now don't you take this too far, so I can break that hand apart. I'm stronger than you. I'm just trying to convey you, embedding an iron, you can't bend that wire. In theology, we call it the hypostatic union, a fancy word of the union of Christ, meaning the human nature in conjunction with the always overseeing divine nature protects the human nature so that he is impeccable. He cannot sin. Now, our confession of faith says, in dealing with this, in chapter 8, section 2, It says, I'm just reading a part of what the confession says. When the fullness of time was come, he took upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof without sin. Chapter chapter 8, section 3 reads, The Lord Jesus in his human nature thus united, the human nature thus united with the, the divine nature, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. 
to execute the office of mediator and surety. And then the larger catechism question, number 38, says it about as best as you can. It says, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God, but that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession? So, in that, answering that question, could Jesus have fallen prey to the devil? No, because he was the God-man. Now, did the devil understand all this? I don't think the devil, though the devil knows a lot, and he's been around for over 6,000 years. He's very astute, very observant. Did the, does the devil know all this? The devil doesn't know all this uh, fully. He comes realizing this is my chance to get at this is my chance to get at the Messiah. Because the devil understood if I can get the Messiah to fall, the war has been won, right? It's been won if the Messiah falls because everybody's hopes is upon him. Now, so to answer the first question, could Christ succumb to temptation? No. But then one would say, then why was the temptation of was there any real forcefulness to that? Well, the answer is yes. But you might say, well, how can an impeccable person sustain anything that makes the temptation real? Well, I've demonstrated this before. You can have an impregnable wall, and you, there can be a force that comes up and hits it, and keeps hitting it, and keeps hitting it. Thinking, well, I'll break it down. I'll break that wall down. And is the wall sustaining anything? Does it feel anything? Of course it's feeling something. It's sustaining a blow, but it will never yield. It will never fall because it's impeccable. But it understands the, uh, it understands the forcefulness of the assault. Jesus understands the forcefulness of the assault of the devil upon him. He's a real man. He can identify with us. He knows the power of the temptation, though he will not fall. So in the first temptation, we see after 40 days of this fasting, he's hungry. Turn this, these rocks into bread, Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to the devil? He says, well, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what was the nature of the first temptation of Jesus? Here it was. Well, here it is in a nutshell. He was tempting Jesus to question his trust of God and to find some unacceptable way to get food. He was testing Jesus's trust in his Father to provide for them. And, and, the, and the reason that that is the thrust of the temptation is because of the verse that Jesus quotes to refute the devil. So what is the passage when Jesus says, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? What is he speaking about? From Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Turn there with me. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's the passage that Jesus is quoting to the devil. Now Moses had, was leading Israel and they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And when there was no food for them to eat, there would be a tendency, right, to wonder, as the Israelites did, is God led us out here just to kill us, to starve to death? Let's go back to Egypt. At least we had the security of food, even though we were slaves. So the whole thing God had arranged so that 
when you're in this wilderness, when food is scarce, are you going to trust me enough to believe that I'll take care of you? And how did God take care of them? He gave them the sweetest bread of all, did he not? The manna from heaven. Brethren, you and I, and what Jesus is doing there in, in, in this passage in refuting the devil, he is saying man shall not live by bread alone. That's not the most important thing in life, though it is a necessity. The Lord wants your trust in Him. He wants your trust in Him. So what the devil was trying to do with Jesus was for Jesus to take matters into his own hands. If you're hungry, then change the stones into bread, Jesus. Take it into your own charge. You can do it. Go ahead and do it. He had miraculous powers to take care of himself. But the the temptation, rather, here's what we need to understand about the, the temptation that came to Jesus that you and I face. And that is our t- the temptation that comes to us as well to, when things begin to go bad, at least in our mind, to say, well, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. Now, the Lord does use means, but we're not to panic. We're not to panic, become anxious, and wonder, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to take care of this? We don't have enough money. Uh, well, how we go? How's this need going to be uh, met? I know I'm careful in mentioning movies in in messages, and I do not recommend this movie. But it was about—I don't know if it was based on a, a true story of a plane that went down in Alaska, and a group of people were faced with the elements, and then they had the, their greatest foe were these wolves, and the wolves began to pick them off one after the other. Is one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. And the, in, in the end, it's coming down to the main character, and here's, here's the fitting point. He's lost his last best friend. Now he's by himself. And he, and he looks up, as it were, to the heavens and says, Will you do something? I, I, something like that. Will you do something? And you know, about three seconds later, he says, Okay, then I'll do it myself. He gave three seconds to God. To help him. Well, then God didn't help him, so I'll do it myself. And the movie ends with him facing this wolf, and it's sure thing, the wolf's going to prevail. And I said, is this how this thing going to end? I said, yes, this is how this thing ended. Utter despair. If, I, if, it's going, if I'm going to get saved, then I'm going to have to do it myself. And God didn't come on my timetable, so I just have to do it myself. You see, that is the temptation of the devil with Jesus. You're hungry, Jesus. Do something about it. Now, Jesus' response shows that life is not exclusively about physical needs. Not exclusively. Now, later on, I'm not going to say too much about Matthew 6, or I'll ruin the sermon when I get to Matthew 6. But in Matthew 6, Jesus says, we're not to worry about anything. And he says, don't worry about the food that you shall eat. Does not God provide the birds of the air their daily food? And then he says, are you not worth more than they? If God takes care of the little birds, he'll take care of you. Don't be anxious. But then what did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of your needs shall be added unto you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to serve your God and to trust in your Savior and to trust in Him enough that He will provide for you. And therefore... You know, I, I guess I've got a reputation of stealing Joe Warcraft's messages or his story, so I'll steal another <laughs> But I do mention it in Joe's story. He, he, he told a great story about this woman, I think it was in England, who 
a, a widow. She was praying, and she just didn't have the means for her food. And she always had a window open, and she would pray and said, Oh, Lord, help me provide for my daily food. And she would pray for this. Well, there's this little boy that would come by, and he kept hearing, you know, this woman praying all this time for God provide. So this little boy decided, Yeah, I'm just going to play a trick on this widow. And every day that this woman's praying for God to provide her daily food, he'd come and just put up a piece of bread, you know, a loaf of bread up there and go run it off. And she looked at it, and she would praise the Lord that this bread showed up. He started going <laughs> like this. And then he'd bring her a pie and all this. And then one day, when she's thanking the Lord, he jumps up and goes, Aha! Aha! It's me! I'm the one who's done this! And the woman says, Well, praise the Lord he... He gave me this food, even though the devil brought it. See, the Lord, he'll find a way. Do you just trust him enough? Do you trust him enough to provide for your needs? And so Jesus says, I don't need to take matters into my own hand. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And by the way, when it says that word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, He's talking about the Word of God. How did the universe come into existence? Psalm 33, 16 says, By the Word of His mouth, everything that was, I mean that is, came into being. You think about this universe and its immensity. All that God had to say is, let it be. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be this galaxy, and there was this galaxy. Boom, all at once. Not the Big Bang, but God's spoken Word. That is the power that Jesus is saying can provide to your needs. I don't need to take matters into my own hands, neither do you. Trust him. And so Jesus prevailed over the devil. Well, the devil decides that uh, he'll go another route. And that is, and by the way, in, in in this trusting, what does the Lord want from us? He wants us to not just hear the word, but obey it. That's what he wants us to do. And one of my favorite passages is Psalm 37:25 that says, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. God will always provide for your necessities of life. Just trust him. Now with... <clears throat> In this regard, and and with faith, with faith, we dispel all the temptations of the devil. Turn with me to um, Ephesians 6, and look at verses uh, 16 and 17. It's the whole section on uh, the, the armor, putting on the armor of God. And there in verse 16 it says, In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, God has given a promise, and with that promise, you take that promise, because what is faith? Faith is simply a trust in the promises of God, is it not? That's what faith is. And so you take that promise of God as a shield of faith, and when the devil comes to you at the opportune time, because the devil comes at opportune times, when things are going tough for you and your family, you've got to put up the shield of faith, the promises of God, trust in the promise of God, seek first the kingdom of God, and when the devil says, I don't think you're going to make it this month, and you, when he shoots that dart, you, you block it with the shield of faith and the promises of God. That's the importance of having that faith in his promises. What was the second temptation? Well, if you look back, turn back to Matthew 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Some have said, did he physically take Jesus there or not? Some have said, I think the better understanding is he didn't have to take him there physically, take him there in a vision. But still, it's a real incident. It's real events happening, but he took him there in a vision. And here they are standing on the pinnacle of the temple. And you have to understand something how Jerusalem was built. There is a portion of the walls of Jerusalem where if you're staying at the top, you know what the, how high you are at the bottom floor for Josephus talks about this. He says when you stand here, you get dizzy because it's 400 feet below. And it says it may have been likely that's where the devil took Jesus, standing him up here and says, throw yourself off. You're the Son of God. And now, in this temptation, the devil has the audacity to quote Scripture. Doesn't the psalm say concerning you that the angels, when you throw yourself off, they'll keep you from hurting yourself? What's happening here? Satan is a master of twisting Scripture for his own purposes. And Peter, in his second epistle, talks about those, he says, that twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Satan twisted Psalm 91. Technically, it was true, but the use of it was sinful, was wrong. Because what was the devil seeking to do? Have Jesus presume on God. To presume God's protection by doing something foolish like jumping off of the pinnacle. Now, under God has made this world in which we live subject to the laws of this earth. And if you jump off a cliff, I can assure you, you're gonna, the ending will not be too good. Don't throw yourself off and put God to the test by some foolish action like this. And that's what the devil was doing. To have Jesus presume upon God. Now, it's interesting when Jesus says, in refutation to the devil at this point, verse 7, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he's, he's referring, that actual quote is from Deuteronomy 6.16, but it's a referencing the event in the wilderness in Exodus 17, with them wanting water in the wilderness. And so I want you to turn to Exodus 17 and look at verses 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed from stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, it's interesting. Moses understood they were testing the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, Take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff in which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Then the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of God, and because, now here's the key, because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, it's, it's a matter of faith there. But is the Lord really with us? And they tested the Lord. And Jesus, we're told here, we're told here that Jesus refused them and says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
You shall not presume on God and do something foolish or have a lack of faith, wondering where your God is. Israel's accusation was a reckless presumption on God. Is he really with us? And if he's really with us, prove it to us, Moses. Prove it to us. Now, God did give them that, but they paid a price. And God says in Hebrews, because of uh, he's thinking of this incident, and God says many of you will perish because of a lack of, un- of, of faith. You tested me, God says, in the wilderness. So the temptation is seen in a false confidence. You know, sometimes we justify our sinful actions by using Scripture to support us, just like the devil tried to use the Scripture to tell Jesus to cast himself off the temple. Psalm 19, let me just, uh, Psalm 19.13 speaks to this sin of presumption along God. Here's what it says. And keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So what was happening is that the people there, Israel was trying to put God's promises to an unfair test. Prove it to us, you're with us. Do it the way we want it to be done. And you know, sometimes, here's how we are guilty of that. We want God to prove himself to us, and it needs to be done by next Friday. Can I have my next Friday, God? Now, the Lord knows what our needs are, and he may know the uh, seriousness of the situation, but when I put demands on God, I'm in real trouble then. I have no right, and you have no right, to put any demands upon the Lord, to presume on him. And you know what that word, presumptuous, how it's uh, translated elsewhere in the Old Testament? It's usually translated arrogance or pride. That's how that word, Hebrew word, is usually translated. And therefore, it is this pride that wants God on our terms. On our terms. And the Lord says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You You can't make... God into what you want him to do and act when you want him to. He hasn't forgotten. You know, there have been times about Hannah, I wonder, it's been five years. There have been prayers for her for five years. I pray for her almost every day. And there were times before the new hearing, I wondered, is she ever going to get let out? There were some dark moments, but in many ways believed in the end that God would exalt her. But there were a lot of people that wanted it to happen five years ago. A lot of us thought it was going to happen after the first hearing, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen then. When the widow came and was knocking on the door of the unjust judge, and he finally got up and gave her what she wanted, And then God says, will not God give speedily to those who come to him? And you think, it's five years speedily? (laughs) Well, God's timetable. God says, look, I'm in charge. I'm in control. And when I do it, it's going to be for my glory and not for yours. And therefore, we see we must never presume upon God driving 100 miles an hour down the road, the street, saying, I'm going to be all right. That's being presumptuous on God, isn't it? Because you're not going to make that curve down there. <laughs> Don't act rashly. But that was the temptation the devil gave. And Jesus prevailed. You don't tempt the Lord God. And then the third temptation. He came to him and he said, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, one thing we need to understand on that, does does Satan have 
all the world to give to Jesus. One thing the scripture says, God is the owner of this world. Now, the Bible does refer to Satan, the devil, as the God of this world. But the way the world, the word world is used, multitudes of ways in the New Testament, and one of the ways is that the word world refers to that evil system of thought in rebellion against God. And the devil is the God of that world. He says, worship me and Jesus all the glories of these great kingdoms, the gold, the money, the recognition, the fame, everything that goes with this is yours. Just worship me and it's all yours. You know, in that regard, he showed him the glories of this world. Someone can understand, well, how could this tempt Jesus since he is the Son of God and as Psalm 2 says, the whole world has been given to him by the Father as his inheritance. So how is this a real temptation to Jesus? But it was a temptation to Jesus. Some have conjectured that what Satan was saying, Jesus, you can have all the glories of the crown without having to go through the suffering of the cross. You can have it now, Jesus. Turn with me to 1 John 2 and look at verses 15 through 17. And we get an idea of, of how the devil was coming to Jesus and how the devil comes to us. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In Jesus' prevailing, and in his exhortation, he's saying, in his refuting of the devil, notice what he says. Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he's referring to those Old Testament passages with reference to God's exhortations to Israel not to worship pagan gods. No, you are to worship only one God, and that's me. I'm the only true God. And so when Satan says, you can have all this if you just worship me, Jesus says, no, I'm to worship only Jehovah. You know, later, <clears throat> in anything that Ecclesiastes teaches us is that of the, the, the vanity of the pleasures of life that we may worship in the sense that preoccupy, you say, well, how do we worship these things when they become priorities with us? That's how we worship them. Now, remember, Jesus said, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit before we look at uh, Ecclesiastes. In, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this important thing. No one can serve two masters. They will either hate the one or love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, and money. There's only one real master, and who is it? Is it me? Or is it the glories of this world? Is it the fame of this world? Is it recognition? Is that whatever you serve is your God? That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever is the most important thing to you is your God. So don't let it be the glories of this world. Because what does First John say? They're passing away, right? They're going to end. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know, Solomon, who we think wrote Ecclesiastes, he talks about the vanity of life. Uh, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, look at verses 10 through 16. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, 
nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? She, <clears throat> the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. For there, this is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost though through a bad investment, he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor uh, that he can carry with his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? If, if your life is all in riches, if your life is all involved around your work, that is your God. And it will disappoint you in the end. The devil tempts us with the glories of the world, with fame, with fortune, whatever it is. I think I've told you this before Marilyn Monroe, the sex goddess of Hollywood, was Jane Mansfield. And not until I was doing my work on the Freemasonry book did I learn this about James Mansfield. You've heard, I don't know if you ever heard of Anton LaVey. He was one of the first to have the Church of Satan in San Francisco. Jane Mansfield became a member of the church of Satan in San Francisco. And someone wrote and witnessed the event when Jane Mansfield, in a ritual, being laid naked, she sold her soul literally to the devil for fame and glory. It wasn't but a couple months later going through Texas that her car, her convertible, went under a semi and the windshield severed her head instantly. And the sex goddess who had gotten some fame and fortune, life ended like that. She sold her soul to the devil. You know, the, the devil, all those who worship him, you think the devil would have made good on that to Jesus? Are you kidding? Did the devil make good to Adam and Eve? To Eve? You know, God, Eve, is jealous. And you're not going to die if you eat of that fruit. And she did. But she did die. Satan never delivered. Our God is whatever we worship, whatever we serve, Jesus said. And therefore, we see that in this, Jesus says, you shall worship me only. And the glories of what the world may offer you is nothing in compared to what I can give you if you worship only Jehovah. And then we're told Matthew's account doesn't mention this, but Luke does in his account. When Jesus prevailed over the devil, uh, Matthew says the angels came and ministered to Jesus. Luke's account in, in Luke 14, 13 says, And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him, and Luke adds this important point, phrase, until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. It wasn't over. That was important for Jesus, the mediator, to prevail in the wilderness. Because Israel was in the wilderness he is the head of the covenant of the people of God. He will suffer in the wilderness, but he will have the victory. And that other opportune time that Satan came, remember Jesus said at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me. And then Judas, it says, being filled with who? Being filled with the devil went out and betrayed Jesus. And when Judas came with the, the, the officers of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, Jesus makes this statement in Matthew. He says, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. And the opportune time there was, even when Jesus was sweating 
drops of blood asking God, is there any other way but the cross? But nevertheless, thy will be done. Remember, Jesus had to tell Satan, talk about that opportune time, you know, Satan can come in ways through your friends. Because when Jesus said he had to go up to Jerusalem to die, Peter says, no, you're not, Jesus. We're not going to let you. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because if Jesus doesn't die, we're not saved. But then, even this, who fills Judas but the devil? But then, here's the irony. In his death on the cross, it was the blow that destroys the devil's influence. And fulfills Genesis 3.15, it says... He will bruise your heel, meaning he'll kill you on the cross, but you will crush his head when you die. Because Hebrews 2 says, in, in his death on the cross, he rendered the devil powerless over us. So how do we win the victory? It's going to be the subject next week's sermon. We're going to, because in the temptation of Jesus... He does give us a pattern that does that we ought to look into, and it deserves merit to, to have a message in itself. We'll learn how we use Scripture in the power of the Spirit to tell the devil to get lost. That is next week's sermon. Let us pray.